Well, I think when Mark called Catherine a warrior, it sets up uh, where we're going with this passage of Scripture. We're going to read uh, a few verses from what is probably the most neglected letter in the New Testament. It's a little letter of Jude that comes right before Revelation. We're not going to read the whole chapter. There's only one chapter, but uh, a good chunk of it. Would you read with me? This is Jude, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 17 through 25. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom it provides, for the warnings that it offers. We, we ask that as we uh, reflect on this ancient letter that's part of the New Testament, that you'd give us a feel for who Jude was and how Jude speaks into our age as well. We all face various struggles. Uh, Mark and Catherine shared some of the challenges and the and the tests that they've been through in recent years. And there are others in this congregation who are facing a variety of tests right now. Some not as great, perhaps even some greater. And we ask that you would be our rock and our strength, our source of wisdom, our counselor and our guide in all ways. Set a fire in our souls that we can't control and we can't contain we want more of you, God. And so we pray to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. About 15 years ago, Dave and Jill Vang, who were very close friends of ours during the first dozen or so developmental years of North River, moved to Virginia. And in their property in Northern Virginia it has some uh, very wide borders and a huge backyard that opens up to a field that just runs and runs and runs. And they bought a handful of sheep to uh, graze in those fields. And I found it interesting that they've not created a, a system of elaborate fences to protect their sheep, but when we visited them, them down there, we noticed that they instead bought a few sheep dogs. Initially, they had two, 
Then they had three. Now I think they have four of these sheepdogs that roam over the fields out behind their home. The sheepdogs sleep outside. They are always on alert. And they cover an amazing amount of territory. When a deer or a wolf hovers into the field, the sheepdog immediately bounds into action with great speed. And these sheepdogs will pound their noses into the sheep to force them back towards safety, to come back towards home, or it will charge at the intruder with speed and intensity to immediately drive it away. It's a fascinating thing to watch. This sheepdog who's literally lying at your feet, calm as anything, will all of a sudden pick up a scent or hear a rustle, and boom, they're off so fast you could never catch them. A longtime North River member who was part of an elite national defense agency a few years ago sent me an article by retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman. It was called On Sheep, Wolves, and Sheepdogs. And it was an excerpt from a book that Grossman had written that has become very popular among people in the law enforcement community and in the military community. The author described his worldview, and he basically said, the world is made up of three kinds of people. Most people are like sheep. And he didn't mean to offend all of us, but he said most people are like sheep. They never have any desire to harm anybody. Uh, they want to eat. They want to sleep. They want to have fun. They, they want to go to work a little bit. But they, they basically want to be left alone. And then there are others that are like wolves. And, and they sneak in. And what they want to do is they want to terrorize the sheep. Sometimes they want to steal from them. Sometimes they want to devour them. But their intentions are never good. And then along with the sheep and the wolves are some sheepdogs. And the conviction of this lieutenant colonel was that there are some people in life who are built like these sheepdogs, that they always have a nose for trouble. And for the most part, they're, they're calm and they look like normal people. And all of a sudden, when they hear that rustle, they spring into action. And you can't drive that out of them, but they are the ones who are always on the lookout for the wolf who's sneaking in, hoping to devour. My next-door neighbor when we lived in Hanover a few years ago was a retired police lieutenant. And I happened to mention that article at one point. He said, oh, yeah, I'm very familiar with that article. I'm the sheepdog in this neighborhood. Whether you know it or not, I've been protecting you for the last five years. And I always thought that was a great conversation because he was literally like that. Never made trouble, never wanted to be in anybody else's business, but he always knew what was going on all around him. And if there was any hint uh, of danger, he was the first one on the spot. Now, I chose to bring up this concept of the sheepdog this morning because the author of this little New Testament letter called Jude wrote with a sheepdog kind of viewpoint. He knew that the apostles of Jesus had warned about false teachers who would invade the church. It's a topic nobody likes to hear about because you know what? We're all called sheep for a good reason. We want things calm, we want things easy, we want, don't want to think about trouble, we just want to kind of glide through life. But Jude operates like a sheepdog. And his nose was up for the changes that were beginning to happen towards the end of the first century as the age of the apostles was dying out and there were new leaders who were beginning to take over. Jude happened to be one of those newer leaders. He wasn't one of the apostles himself, but he'd walked with them. He knew them. He knew what they taught. And he was concerned for the gospel, that we would not change the gospel, and that we would know the gospel so well that when somebody comes in to add to it or to take something away, that we would instantly notice the difference. 
and that we would be warned. This morning's message is the final in our three-part series that we're calling We Still Believe. And in this series, we're looking at concerns that the early church had for the next generation of Christians, as seen through these three short letters in the New Testament. We looked at 2 John, then last week 3 John, and today we're going to look a little bit at Jude. Here's the main idea that Jude gets across in this letter. Churches and Christians who know and defend the gospel will stand forever. Both churches and Christians who know the gospel so well that you can recognize it and that you can hear when somebody is distorting it instantly, your faith will stand forever. Now, why did Jude write? Uh, Same reason that we've tracked for the last two weeks. The church as a movement was growing and spreading through mostly house churches They were hard to contain. The church wasn't nearly as developed as we see it in today's world. The time of the apostles was ending. And now there were these false teachers who were beginning to infiltrate the church like wolves that sneak into a sheep's pasture. And Jude was a sheepdog who was focused on preparing the sheep to contend for the faith. How do we contend for the faith? There's an interesting phrase that Jude includes in here in in verse 3 when he says, I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people, or the older versions would say to God's saints. We're going to talk about five ways that we contend for the faith in an age of confusion. I believe that the letter of Jude is very, very relevant today because we have all kinds of new ideas that people sometimes add to the gospel. And some of those ideas sometimes can diminish the gospel or deny parts of the gospel. And so we need to understand what was Jude telling us to do when he says contend for the faith that was entrusted once for all to God's people. Here's the first thought that comes from this passage. Number one, realize that faith in Jesus changes everything. When you have real faith in the gospel of Christ, it changes everything in your life. Notice the way that Jude starts. Verse 1, he writes very simply, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The opening line of this letter from Jude seems ordinary. He tells us his name, identifies himself as a servant of Jesus, and then mentions his brother and his brother's name. Oh, if that was all that was involved in this simple greeting. For those who know more about what he was saying here, Jude was being modest. There's only one set of brothers in the entire New Testament that are named James and Jude where they are listed together. And those two men were, along with two others named Joseph and Simon, the half-brothers of Jesus. They were the sons of Joseph and Mary who were born after Jesus was born. So here comes Jude, several years younger than Jesus, and so much is wrapped up inside that simple identification. Notice that Jude was not listed among the apostles. He makes no claim to greatness. He makes no claim to proximity to Jesus. In fact, when we look closer at the Gospels, Jesus' brothers did not understand right away his unique identity, and they didn't accept that early on. The indication we get is that both Jude and James came to faith in Jesus only after the resurrection. It took that very public execution of Jesus on the cross and then to see him walking again after three days in the tomb for them to believe that Jesus really was the Son of God and Mary rather than Joseph and Mary. So, you think you have doubts sometimes? 
that you've had a hard pathway to faith, consider Jude. I mean, he grew up in the same home as Jesus, and yet he wrestled with all of these details for a long time. Yet Jude never makes any special claim of relationship. He never says, I'm a half-brother of Jesus, so listen to me above all other writers. James, by now, was one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church, the very first church. Jude's conversion from spiritual skepticism to pastoral leadership came through putting his faith in the same Jesus whom you and I believe in, the same Jesus who had been publicly put to death and then who rose again. What does that mean for you and me? There are no special cases who get in by virtue of reputation or relationship. Even Jesus' own brother had to have a life-changing spiritual wake-up call at some point in his life. So he never identifies himself as the brother of Jesus, only as a servant of Jesus. Imagine coming to that point where you acknowledge your own brother as the master of your life and the one to whom all of your hopes for eternity are pinned on. Everything came together for him once he yielded to Jesus as his master. Question, have you taken that step? Is it possible there's somebody here who's saying, well, I grew up in a Christian home. Mom and dad knew Jesus. All my family members know Jesus. Of course I'm in. Have you taken that personal step? Say, Lord, I yield to you. I recognize you are the son of God. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And I will put my faith and my trust in you. The very brother of Jesus had to take that kind of step before he could begin to write to us or have anything at all to say. Second, remember who you are. If we take that verse and tease it out a little bit further, Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Right at the outset, Jude stresses three important features of Christian identity that we don't often think about that every person who is truly alive to God through Jesus has been called. You may not be aware of how it happened or when it happened or why it happened. You may think that it all depends on you and your faith, and that's an important feature, but there's this calling aspect. God has been drawing. God, God has been wooing you closer, and you are called by him. He summoned you out of darkness and into light out of spiritual death and into spiritual fullness and spiritual life and spiritual health. Not only have you been called, you have been loved. Loved deeply. Loved by God. Loved by God in Christ. And you have been kept for Jesus Christ. We don't often talk about this concept very much, but Jude mentions three times in this only chapter of his letter about the keeping power of God. Sometimes we think that our faith is all about us, that we choose to believe and that we stay in faith and we, we continue to nurture our faith and it's all about us. And there's a huge component where we are responsible for our own faith. But in those moments when you are at your weakest, in those moments when you doubt everything, in those moments when you get rocked to your knees, remember one thing. He keeps you even more than you believe in him. And once you are alive to Christ, he holds you through the dark times. Mark Catherine, 
I appreciated your willingness to open up about how hard it was in those dark times. You didn't use the words, but what you described, and it hit me as you were talking, was the keeping power of God in the midst of those times when it seems like everything else in life is up for grabs. And you gave testimony to how God does that. Why these three reminders? Jude is stressing the sovereign side of our salvation, that God calls people into a new reality, that it's not all about us, that God lavishes his love on everyone he calls. To be a Christian is not simply a matter of taking on a certain body of beliefs, as important as all of that is. Through that faith transaction, you have entered more deeply into the love of God. Think of this. God loves everyone. But family members experience a different kind of intimacy with God by entering into that relationship that those who have not yielded to him can never know. And Jude says this all simply with these few words, you are loved in God the Father. And all those who are called and loved are kept. Yes, redemption is only applied when we step toward Jesus in faith, but once we participate in this new life, we are kept by his power. On the days when your best efforts fall, when you stumble and feel shame and when you want to quit, remember this, that Christ has a hold on you and he holds his people closely. And he will not let you fall from his grace if you are truly trusting in him. So we can find encouragement here, even in the, in the confusing seasons of life, that you have been called, that you have been loved, that you have been kept by the steady hand of the Lord. You see, churches and Christians who know and defend the gospel know that they can stand forever. Here's a third feature of contending for the faith in an age of confusion. Recognize that the faith is worth defending. Notice the way that Jude refers to this as the faith. He's not talking about some kind of amorphous faith that's vague. He's talking about the faith that was handed down by the apostles. He's talking about the gospel. Verse 3, he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. It is important that we understand that Jude is not trying to raise up defensive and argumentative Christians. That's not his point. Let's recognize we live in a day when most Christians hate to argue about doctrine, while at the same time there are others who see themselves as self-appointed heresy hunters. Think of those you have encountered who love to argue over theology on Facebook. Ever done that? I have. I have walked into the trap and I have sworn I will not do that anymore. I do not debate theology over Facebook. I had a friend a couple of weeks ago who was debating something that was really kind of out there. And I, I sent her a private note. And I said, can we get together for a cup of coffee? Because I think that you're really way out there and I'm not going to take you on on Facebook. And when we sat down for coffee, she said, thank you so much for caring enough to, to invite me to sit down. What's your concern? And we were able to talk it out. And, and it went well. Now, a few people love to argue these points, but most people are quickly turned off by this stuff because nobody's really listening to each other. They're just trying to get their points across. They're trying to win. 
And Jude was not trying to create a first century class of argumentative Facebook theologians. London pastor and New Testament scholar Christopher Green tackles what Jude meant by this concept of the faith. And he had four descriptions that he, that he included in his commentary. The first is that the faith is closed in its content. So what that means is we need to add nothing to the New Testament record, that we need to add nothing to the gospel, that the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus contained in the New Testament is complete. Second, the faith is closed in authorship. It is a thing given Jude says, not a thing invented. It was not made up as the apostles went along or sometime later. But Jude's contention is that God is the author of an unchangeable gospel. It is his good news. And the apostles were among the first who received it. And so their gospel was consistent from one to the other. And the apostles, by the time that Jude is writing, had now entrusted that gospel to the church through the letters and the books of the New Testament that were being collected and that were soon to be bound in the collection that we know as the New Testament. If God has given us an unchangeable gospel, he is not going to give us another one. This is it. So the faith is closed in its content. It's closed in its authorship. The third point that he makes is the faith is closed in its historical setting. He describes it here as the faith entrusted once for all. We should not be surprised that, that Jude is a neglected letter in our day because Jude leaves no room for relativism, which is the dominant philosophy of our time. In other words, this is not Jude's truth versus my truth and your truth and everybody else's truth. He is saying this is the gospel. This is the word handed down. It speaks of finality. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's plan for the salvation of human beings throughout all ages. Then the last point that Green makes is that the faith is open to anyone. The saints are those who trust in Jesus, who live out their faith, and who wait for him to return. That's it. They are not perfect people. They are you and me if we are trusting. We are made holy by the presence of Christ in our lives, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We, we are not holy because we are better. We are holy because we are in process and that we belong to him. Second Peter chapter 3 adds some important thoughts to this idea of defending the gospel and it being worthy of defending. There Peter writes, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord or set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But, he adds, do this with gentleness and respect. What does that mean? You and I are not expected to have an answer for every question that could possibly come your way. It's worth studying to try and figure that out. But no one of us in this room has all of the answers for everybody that we'll ever meet. And you, you and I are expected, though, to have the reason for the hope that you have. That's why I asked Mark and Catherine a few minutes ago that one last question. Why do you cling to Jesus? Whatever comes out at that moment, that's the hope that they have that keeps them rooted in him. What is the hope that keeps you tied to Jesus? What is the reason for the hope that gives you a sense of purpose in going on in life? That's what you and I each need to master, first of all. And you can do this. 
And yet, we are also instructed to answer when we do with gentleness and respect for others. Uh, that's why I mentioned the, the dangers of being Facebook theologians and getting into these raging debates with people where we're not sitting face to face. The gentleness and respect factor is usually left out when we do that. That what we need to do is simply state the reasons for the hope that we have and see who will carry on with that. But trying to win an argument with faceless people is, well, it's just dangerous and, and leads to misunderstandings. Number four, respect and rescue those who flounder. All right, the word flounder isn't in the New Testament. You'll never find it. I put that in there. It seems to combine two groups of people or three groups of people that are described here. So here's what Jude writes. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. What's that saying? Some of us in this room will hit serious times of doubt. And what we need to do is be merciful to those folks when they're going through those times of doubt. There are a lot of things that can create doubt. There, there's an illness that shakes you to your core. Uh, there's, there's a test that comes that's harder than you ever thought it would be, and it broke your endurance. Uh, there's a child who wanders down a path you never thought they'd go down. And there are all kinds of people who doubt in those moments. And so Jude's advice is be merciful in those moments. Don't ever gloat or power up or shame somebody in those moments. Next, uh, he, he adds to that, and, and he says, save others by snatching them from the fire. In other words, there are some friends that we will have that all of a sudden start to walk toward a path that is headed for danger. And he's saying you can almost see the smoke of the fire all around. Grab them, do what you've got to do to get in their way to bring them back. When I read that, that one item, there's a guy who I think of during my freshman year in college. In part, I went to a Christian college to get away from some of the traps that I fell into in high school. And I had too much success right away. I scored a touchdown in my very first game in college. And immediately, I discovered that night that there was a party crowd in this Christian college doing all the things that were off the, the list that we were supposed to sign that we would never do while we were there. And a few weeks later, there was one of the guys who was a, a senior on that team. He was an all-American track guy who saw me walking down a path toward a class, and he came up and he put his arm around me, and he said, you are screwing up the opportunity you have, and you don't have to, and I'll walk with you if you want. I am grateful to that guy because I remember that moment to this day, and he put his arm around me and said, you are a screw-up right now. Walk with me. And he gave me a new path. And he gave me a new set of friends. And it changed the whole next three and a half years of, of my college career and probably the direction of my life because of one guy's courageous act to mercifully, kindly, lovingly tell me that I needed a kick in the pants and he was there to give it to me. <laughs> Sometimes that's very important. And then there's the other group that's caught so deep in whatever is going on, whatever is destroying their life, that Jude describes it as corrupted flesh. Notice both the kindness and the urgency in Jude's challenge. 
Eugene Peterson translated these verses this way in The Message, which is a one-man translation into modern English. I love the way he wrote this. Go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. Go after those who take the wrong way. Be tender with sinners, but not soft on sin. The sin itself stinks to high heaven. You can smell it, he's saying. All right, and here's the last piece of advice he gives us. Rely on the power of God. And so he ends the letter with these two verses. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Those two verses are the best known, most widely quoted verses in this letter of Jude because they are offered as a benediction a lot of times at the end of a church service. But they were not written just to be a benediction at the end of a church service. They were actually meant to be the encouraging words that come at the end of this warning that Jude gives. He's saying stay close to the gospel and cling to the power of God because it's the power of God in Jesus that can allow you to stand in your faith, to stand secure, to stand with hope right to the very end for now and forevermore. So here it is. Churches and Christians who know and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ will stand forever. Other people will come with new ideas and try to shake you from that position, but when you know the gospel, you cannot be shaken. When you know it, you can hear it when somebody changes it or leaves something out. When you know it, you can rely on it. Amen? I hope that you guys and I will continue to take this to heart. I think that Jude was writing for the first century world, but his wisdom still applies to our world today because our world isn't much different. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we have here every weekend to come up here and to worship you, to search out ancient wisdom from the Bible, and to find ways to lovingly and kindly apply it to the world that we live in. For many people, the gospel is not attractive, and it's not something they want to run to because the gospel catches us short and tells us that there are things in our lives that need to change. But thank you that the gospel also draws us to Jesus who loves us, forgives us, heals us and restores us, and gives us a whole new outlook and a whole new lease on life. Thank you for the sheepdogs in our lives who warn us and who let us know when the wolf is out there so that we can be good and faithful sheep who know the good shepherd and who follow where he leads. Lord, we ask that you would walk with each of us during this week. We ask that you would grant us the wisdom for the decisions we have to make, the faith for the challenges that we face, and the hope that we can offer to others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite our ushers to come, and it's at this time that we continue worshiping God. Part of that worship is by giving our, our tithes and our offerings. Uh, you can do that online. You can do that through uh, your online checking. You can do that through text in church that talk, 
Todd talked about this morning. You can get linked up with all that stuff, or you can do it here physically as well. Thanks for being here today.